Welcome to Bread. If this is your first time, my name's Ed, and uh, as Hannah said, uh, we lead this thing together. All complaints to her. Um, oh, by the way, if you would like to do a review on Yelp or Google, you're very welcome to, as long as it's five stars. Uh, if you don't want to do a five-star review, you can come and talk to me afterwards, and then we'll have a little chat, and then that will be fine. Uh, good. Anyway, um, just saying that because people find us on, a strange number of people find us on the internet. I know, it's like we're in the 21st century. It's amazing. Anyway, so if you'd like to do that, you can. You can obviously do a one- or two-star review if you have to. Uh, anyway, we're continuing our, our series on the life of bread. This is basically the things that we think uh, are important in the life of all Christians and in the life of all churches. Uh, and we're looking at how Jesus sort of teaches, encourages, and models to us these different aspects of the Christian uh, kind of way of being. And as Hannah said, uh, one of our core values is that everyone gets to play here. Nobody has to, though. But the more we discover our individual gifts and calling in life, the more uh, we are able to play our uniquely defined roles in God's kingdom. Not just the better for the health and the life of the church, not just the better for the health and the life of our community and the world outside, but also the better for us, our health and life, because we become the people that we are created to be. We, we're not just human beings. We're not just here for relationship with God and one another. We are also human doings, and the more we can actually express our gifts, our unique different gifts, the more we become those people. So two weeks ago, we considered uh, what it is to be worshippers, last week prayers, this week evangelists. Now, in the same way that not all of us are called to lead worship, but we're all called to worship, not all of us are called to be evangelists primarily, but we are all called to be able and be ready to share what we have with other people. Okay, good. Now, the word evangelist, as uh, you may know, comes from the Greek word evangelion, which is uh, at its root um, the term good news. It's the word that Jesus uses to describe the gospel, uh, the, or it is the gospel, uh, the word that is used there um, to encapsulate everything that he has come to be and do for us. So, an evangelist is someone who tells anyone something good. It's my birthday. I bought you coffee. HBO has decided to release all remaining episodes of Succession tonight so we don't have to wait week after week after week after week. Drake has retired. All good news, all messages of good news from me to you, none of which are true. I'm so sorry, I know, especially about Succession. So we can all be evangelists, and in fact we all are evangelists. Now, there are times when we want to try and keep good news to ourselves, particularly it seems to be about openings of new restaurants that we don't want anyone to ruin. However, in general, about things more important than Five Leaves is, is open just down the road on Vermont, 8 till 11, valet parking available, keep it to yourself. Uh, that apart from things that uh, are relatively inconsequential, there is something deeply unchristian about being closed-handed with good things. Let us, in all aspects of our life, be generous and open and willing to share everything that is good with other people because that's what Jesus does. He, 
shares himself, his whole self, to at extraordinary uh, ends for the whole sake of the world. So let's be like him. So evangelism as a general concept, pretty simple, pretty easy. However, when it comes to Christian evangelism, when it comes to sharing what we believe about Jesus, it is for many of us anything but simple and easy. Why that is, I think, for a number of reasons. Firstly, people can think that in order to be an evangelist, they need to be able to communicate in all the minutiae and perfect theology everything that has been done by Jesus when they talk to people. So that, number two, it's only good if the people that they are talking to suddenly are convicted of their sinfulness before the Lord, bow down in kind of tearful worship, give their whole lives over to him, uh, become someone who then decides to spend the rest of their days moving to, I don't know, some kind of indigenous tribe in the Brazilian rainforest, like a sort of Victorian era missionary, um, something like that. But I think this is a misunderstanding just to start. In contrast, in, sorry, in contrast to that caricature, Paul very simply says, always be re ready to give a reason for the hope that you have when anyone asks. And that's really it. No mention of immediate dramatic conversion. No mention of comprehensive theology. Just be ready to talk to people from a subjective point of view why it is you believe. What does it mean to you? And this approach is evidenced throughout the gospel. When Jesus talks to the Samaritan woman at the well, and he talks to her about how the fact that she's had five husbands and the person that she's with is not her husband, and she's going, wow, you must be the Messiah. She then goes to the rest of the village, and she says, listen, I have met this person who told me everything uh, about myself. Could this be the Messiah? Come and see him. When Andrew uh, meets Jesus, he immediately runs off to find his brother and say, come and see, I think I've met the Messiah. When Philip meets Jesus, Jesus, he runs off to his friend Nathaniel and says, hey, I think I've seen the Messiah, come and see him. And Nathaniel goes, yeah, right, he's not a Messiah, could anything good from, come from Nazareth? Then he meets Jesus and he goes, oh, wait a second, you are the Messiah, <laughs> silly me. Uh, and he bows down and worships him. You see, it's always Jesus, by his spirit, who does the actual dramatic changing of anyone. The spirit it is who opens blind eyes. The spirit it is who softens hearts. The spirit it is who convinces minds. Our job, all of us, our job is simply to say, hey, come and see something good. Now, that is not to say that there aren't those of us who are gifted evangelists and this is your actual gifting. This is what drives you. And there are those who do that and the, the proof is in the pudding. They are able to convince people in large numbers to come and see Jesus. But for the rest of us, let's just be content with going, come and see, come and see. And on that point, I know um, that for many of you, what it means, um, what it has been taught that to be a Christian is basically to be telling people all the time about Jesus and you mustn't stop. I talked to a uh, girl who was brought up in a, going to a Christian school in Northern California and they had an assembly every morning and this was, I think, high school age, assembly every morning where everyone stood up and then the principal would say, so, 
who's talked to one person about Jesus this week. If you've only talked to one, sit down. Talk to two people about Jesus, sit down. Three people, until there was one person left standing, talk to 17 people, round of applause, who's going to beat her next week. Now, if you have been motivated by guilt or obligation, please just let yourself off the hook for now, for the rest of your life. The thing about guilt, the thing about obligation, it is a very, very powerful way of motivating people. It's why people, churches, institutions, companies use it all the time. It really works. It gets people to do what they do. However, Jesus never, ever, ever uses it. Because whilst it's very powerful, it is very, very destructive to us. Do you know what Jesus uses as his motivation for us to do anything? Grace. He uses grace, which doesn't get the same results. But it does set people completely free. So, could you try and let yourself off the hook as best as you can? and allow him to fill you with his grace, his power, his free gift. The thing about grace, it can be completely abused all the time. We can abuse it if we want to. And Jesus says, nevertheless, more grace, more grace, more grace. It is the antithesis of guilt. It's free, it's infinite, it's without condition, unmerited, and that's what he says to you. You are free, go. So, number, number one, we think that actually we need to do this um, extraordinary kind of evangelistic Billy Graham style thing. Number two and number three are the things I want to kind of concentrate for the um, rest of the talk, which is the reason we find evangelism difficult. First one is we're not always convinced, if we're really honest with ourselves, that introducing people to Jesus is actually that important. And number two... We're not always convinced that people meeting Jesus will actually be very good for them. Why would we do that? Maybe it will ruin their lives. I know you've thought that. So I want to talk about these two issues as we look at how Jesus introduces himself in a very famous passage to a man called Nicodemus in John's Gospel. This is John 3. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it is coming from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things. Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? 
No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. So, concern number one, is it actually that important to tell people? Now, Jesus uses various illustrations um, to depict what it is and this experience of eternal life that he is promising. And here he uses probably the most famous phrase, to be born again. It's the most famous, but it's also probably the most problematic for us as 21st century people living in a city like LA because the connotations that come with it are not always positive. A recent survey was done in this country where um, 70% of respondents said they would prefer not to have a neighbor who is a born-again Christian. 70%. Uh, As Hannah said, we've been meeting our neighbors, and uh, we've just moved house, and we're going to a new school. And the thing is, we get on really well with them. We had this particular couple who are very nice, and we're talking to them about it, and like lots of shared experiences. Our kids want to have play dates. And then uh, the husband said, so what do you do? Uh, we lead a church, and then the whole thing just changes. The whole mood changes, and he sort of drifts away with his child. Stay away from the Christians. That could be bad, because connotations come with this phrase that aren't necessarily positive. In general terms, I think people think two things when it comes to hearing this phrase. One, it is someone who is born again has hit rock bottom. Their whole life has fallen apart, and then they've had a sort of dramatic coming to Jesus, and everything um, has sort of fallen into place for them. Uh, But basically, they were at the end of themselves, number one. Number two, they are kind of um, a little bit uh, dogmatic, a little bit uh, religious, a little bit holier than thou. This is the term that, um, this is the, the, meaning that comes to people's mind. Now, whilst that may be the case now, it is not what Jesus means by it at all. Because Nicodemus, the man who Jesus exclusively applies this terminology to, is a million miles from either being a candidate for whom the whole of life has fallen apart and he hasn't got anywhere else to turn and maybe Jesus could help me, and he is also not a candidate for needing some rigorous structure and dogmatic moralism in his life. Verse 3 says he's a Pharisee, a member of the Jewish ruling council, which means he was old, it means he was rich, and it was means he was learned. Verse 10, Jesus calls him Israel's teacher. So he is the top dog Pharisee. We're talking highly educated, successful, high social status, powerful, moneyed. And to boot, he is not spiritually seeking. He is not trying to wonder what has happened to, the, um, to life, what life is all about. It says that he... Um, Uh, Verse 2, comes at night in secret so that no one else will see him. And he says, we know that you are a teacher uh, who has come from God. He doesn't say, I know. He says, we know. He is talking on behalf of a whole group of people. Now, the Pharisees were particularly antagonistic towards Jesus, but it seems like there was some sort of faction that were quite interested in him, and Nicodemus was their spokesperson, come to find out about him. And what he wants to find out is, how do you do all those miracles, and uh, how are you such a good teacher? But he is not saying, tell me about the meaning of life. So he hasn't hit rock bottom, he's not spiritually seeking, and he has no real spiritual appetite because his life is not chaotic. He is a Pharisee, after all, and the Pharisees had rules for everything. They even had rules for how many peas you were allowed to pop out of a pea pod on the Sabbath. That is how strict you can be. 
but it's precisely because Nicodemus is all these things, all these characteristic things that we would not necessarily associate with someone who is going to be born again or who needs to be born again, that Jesus says to him, you need to be born again. Because what Jesus is actually saying is there is only one way, and it is for everyone. Whether you think you need it or not, I am the one. Now, a few weeks ago, I said um, that there are some people who really don't need God because their whole life is all together. And it's true. Why would they need anything else? Because they've got it all. Now, that may be true in their perception, but what Jesus is saying is that's not actually true of anyone. Everyone needs me. And everyone needs to go through the same process. What he is doing is taking away any excuses that we might have, any defense mechanisms. He's taking away, oh, I don't really need that, or I'm not really that Christian. I'm a bit sort of, you know, uh, a bit different to that. He's saying there aren't types of Christians. There aren't types of people. It's either him getting him or not having him. That's it. Everyone needs to be born again. He's saying this is not an optional extra. This is crucial. Because he refuses to be put in the moral teacher box, which is sort of where Nicodemus wants to put him. When Nicodemus says to him, you are a teacher who has come from God, what he is effectively saying is, how are you such a good teacher? I want to be a good teacher like you. And Jesus says, you think I'm from God? I am more from God than you would ever possibly understand. You would ever be able to contemplate. Do not patronize me with I am from God. I have seen things that you have never seen. I was not created. I was there from the very beginning. I am not from God. I am God. And I am here to bring new life to everyone. Do not call me a moral teacher. Do not call me a miracle worker. I am not here to show you how to live a better life. I am not here to show you some exciting, miraculous things. I am here to transform people's lives from a fundamental pure level. Quick side point. Here's some tangents. Tang tangents? Tangents. Is there good in other philosophies and religions? Absolutely, of course there is. What happens to devoted people who, through no fault of their own, have grown up in a time and place where they will never hear about Jesus? I don't know. I don't know. Let's leave it in God's hands. God loves everyone. God is able to deal with all these things. Let's not worry about it too much. Can God's voice be heard through people of other faiths, of other philosophies, or of no faith at all? In the Bible, there is Balaam's ass. Ass as in donkey, not as in butt. Okay? Balaam's ass is a donkey. God chooses to use Balaam's ass, the donkey, to speak through. He literally speaks through the mouth of a donkey. So do you therefore think that he could speak through the mouth of, let's say, Drake? I imagine he can. 
and anyone else, yeah, probably not. No, I'm joking. <laughs> Hello, Drake, if you're listening. Love you. Uh, God can do whatever he pleases. Does this mean that, it, therefore, everything spiritual is good? Not at all. The Bible is very clear about this. There is a spiritual realm that we exist in. Whether we believe in it or not, it is there, and it is good, and it is also not good. And so for us, the job is to go after the good stuff, which always looks like Jesus. Go after the Jesus-inspired spirituality. Do not mess around with the non-Jesus-inspired spirituality. Do not go to the psychic. Do not go to um, uh, get involved in astrology or New Age or any of these sort of uh, things. At, at, at their very best, at their very best, they are a complete waste of your time and money. At your best, at their best, sorry. Because, and this is Jesus' point, he's the real thing. He is the end of all searching and longing. Listen, I don't want to make anyone feel bad if they've, if they've done these things. Just don't do it again. Get rid of it. Just do it, you know, don't worry. You'll be fine. He's the end of all quest for the meaning of life. So is it important? No. It's vital. But, and finally, is it any good though? I think we find the idea of talking to people about Jesus difficult or even saying that we go to church difficult or even saying that, you know, perhaps Jesus is actually the Son of God and that he actually is the one that we're all made for. We find that difficult because we're not sure that it's actually good news for people. We don't know whether we really want to inflict this whole church thing on people. We could be going to brunch. They're all going to brunch. We could be doing that. You know, we might think it's true. We might think uh, we should be doing it. But do we really want to put that on other people? And also, it's going to cause such social awkwardness with our friendships if you know they become Christians ah what if they get really excited about it I googled born again Christian um, and by the way this isn't uh, my attempt to get us all to start referring to ourselves as born again Christians again I think that ship has sailed let's leave that terminology I am just trying to say that Jesus what Jesus means by it is something very different to what our culture understands but you know it's done but I googled born-again Christians, and one of the first results uh, was someone's post on Yahoo, which was entitled this, I've lost my brother to born-again Christianity. It says this, he keeps trying to get me into church by making me feel guilty by constantly quoting Bible verses. His whole personality has changed since he started with the church. He is now very distant from his family, and it's like we never ever existed. All he does now is talk about the wrongs of the world, e.g. smoking and drinking and premarital sex. Whereas six months ago he was a fun person to go out with, now he is boring. Ever met that guy? Why would anyone want to introduce anyone to someone who would make them like that? Let us be, uh, let us be crystal clear. This is not Jesus. This is the power of religion. 
and we must violently reject it at all costs, at all turns, wherever we see it. Let us flee from it. Let us tell it what it is and let us never, ever, ever go down that line because this is precisely the formula that Jesus is rejecting in the face of Nicodemus's questions here. Religion takes Jesus free, loving, new-birthing, revolutionizing Jesus, and sucks all the godly good life out of him, turning him into a religious moral pursuit where you have to do the right thing, and ultimately the opposite of the gospel, which is, if you do all these things, then God will be pleased with you. Completely counter to what Jesus is saying here and what he has done and the heart of our faith. He is not a moral teacher. He does not come to inform us how we can reform our lives and make our lives better. He comes to spiritually transform us by his power through his spirit. He comes to spiritually rebirth us with eternal life. He does not suck the life out of us. He puts it into us. Now, is how we live our lives morally important to Jesus? Of course it is. Of course it is. But our morality is always a product of our spirit-filled life, not the other way around. Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. So the fruit of Jesus' spirit is this, more love coursing out of you, more joy, more peace, more patience, more kindness, more goodness, more gentleness, more self-control, all of that. Isn't that everything that anyone would ever want? But it's not just that, it's also complete freedom from the past. No more dragging around our shame and our guilt. No more dragging around the things that have been said to us that make us feel like this small. No more dragging around the things that we don't want anyone ever to know about because Jesus deals with it all. It is complete freedom from all your past. You can just walk away from it now because not that you've done anything, but that he has taken it all and destroyed it, burned it up. He remembers it no more. He is like the trash man of the world. He takes our stinking bags of rubbish, of garbage, that are tied around our feet, and he destroys them forever. Is that not everything that anyone would ever want? Yes, but it's not just that. It's also healing and restoration. Behold, he says, I am making all things new. He promises to give back all the years the locusts have eaten, all the bits of shrapnel that have got stuck in you as you wander through this life, through the crossfire of this life, all the things that are flying around that people have done to you, all the hurt and pain. He says, give it to me. I am the great physician. And with my holy scalpel, I will take that out of you. All the poison, all the death, all the horrid things that make you feel like you can't actually stand up straight and look people in the eye. All the pain, all the words, I will take it away and I will remove it from you forever and I will heal you and make you new. Isn't that all that anyone would ever want? 
But of course, it's not just that. It's also meaning and purpose. It's knowing who you are, what you're called to do, and that you really matter. That you uniquely have gifts and calling in this world to do stuff. That no one else can do the things you can do. But it's not just that. It's also an end to all comparison and competition. I've been kicking around a theory um, about the heart of our problem as human beings. I'm not sure that this is completely true, but it might be. I'm trying to work it out. But that the heart of our problem, from Cain and Abel onwards, has been competition. That we compare ourselves to other people, and we compete with them, not to be the people we could be, but just to beat someone else. There's definitely an element of truth in this. But Jesus ends it all in his body on the cross. All competition, all comparison. We are no longer people trying to get up the ladder of recognition, climbing as far as we can, kicking anyone off who gets in our way. We are not trying to make a name for ourselves because, for the very fact, we already know exactly who we are because the Son of God, the creator of the universe, has told us. So we don't need to worry about it anymore. We're children of the Most High God, sons and daughters. Is that not everything that anyone has ever wanted? So, is it good? It sounds quite good. But the more we experience it, the more we're able actually to believe it to be true the more we actually experience the love and the mercy and the power of our living God, the more we might actually think, I'd like people to experience this. So, that would be a good thing to do, wouldn't it? Why don't we stand? Lots of reasons. Uh, but uh, would you like to stand? As Hannah said, we always offer an opportunity to pray for anyone who'd like to be prayed for at the end of our services. And the reason we do this is we believe that the Holy Spirit is with us, that anyone who's a Christian has got the Holy Spirit. He entered your heart when you became a Christian, and he's never, ever going to leave. However, we leak his presence. We don't always follow him. We do things that get in the way of him. And it's good for us to experience more of him. So when we're praying for people, we're just asking the Holy Spirit to speak, to fill people, to show them his love, to show them himself, to bring everything to life. It's like you've got a little fire burning inside you and we're asking God to pour on his gasoline so that it comes a little bit more. So anyway... In a moment, I'm just going to ask if anyone would like to come up to, for prayer for two particular reasons. You can come for any reason, but these are the things that I feel like God wants to do. Firstly, this experience of God and his goodness, of Jesus' love and affection for you, his grace and his mercy, that he is actually good news. When was the last time you felt that?
because if it was a long time ago, or if it was never, he wants to show you exactly who he is right now. He wants to pour it into you because he loves you so much and he does not want you to be um, bereft of this. Sorry, I'm very tired. I can't get my words out today. And secondly, would you like to introduce people to the Jesus you've met? Is this actually the thing that sparks you, that excites you? It's very strange, but there are some people who really like doing this. I know Odd people. I'm one of them. I actually like talking to people who aren't Christians about Jesus. That's what I get off on. It's crazy. Is that you? The type of people that this is, is the gatherers of people, the exciting people, the people who, excuse my French, don't really give up about stuff because they just want to get it done and they're excited by this and they've met Jesus and they love Jesus and they particularly love people who haven't met Jesus yet and they can see how much Jesus would change them, how much Jesus loves them. So is that you? It doesn't have to be. If it's not you, don't pretend it is. That'll be a nightmare. But if it is you, be filled with the Spirit of God to preach the good news to heal the sick, to cast out demons, be filled with the Spirit of God to do what you were created to do. Because it doesn't matter how sophisticated we get as being actual evangelists, without the Spirit, we might as well be playing golf. And golf is a terrible game that no one should play. Good.